You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. It's always great having Chuck Palahniuk. We always go much deeper than I always expect to go. And it's always great. I always think about it for many months or years afterwards. And such a pleasure. He's the author of Fight Club. He's the author of a new book, Not Forever But For Now, a great new novel. And we talk about writing and life and the relationship between the two and then the specifics. of. The we talk about everything. So here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Well, Chuck, where are you right now? Are you in Oregon? I am in Portland, Oregon. Are you doing a book tour for this book? Oh, I'm doing the mother of all book tours. Do book tours work? You know, they, they used to do... Book, the purpose of book tours was that they got you local promotion. And even if you only got like six people in the store, you got to do the, the daytime television show locally. You got to do all the radio shows. The newspaper would cover you. Uh, you got all the local market. You got dumped with free publicity. 
And nowadays there is no coverage for books. So book tours are kind of useless, except for mine, because mine draw like a thousand people. That's good. Well, you, I, think, I think you, more than many authors, you have a very loyal audience. They stick with, they follow you. Well, you know, the shocking part is I first met them when they were in high school and then I met them when they were in college and then I met them, they brought their baby and now they're bringing their teenager, which is oh my gosh, really fucking depressing. And the teenagers, do they have a clue? No, the teenagers love the books. It's the one thing that they, they share in common with their parents. Oh, that's good. They're not like, this is what I'm wondering, like just in general, books and not airport books, like let's say, you know, thrillers that you could read on a flight from New York to California books. in, in other than that, are they in trouble? Do you think because of TikTok and YouTube? I mean, people can scroll forever on TikTok and, and be just as happy. It seems. Yeah. But you know, books give a depth of experience and they give a kind of, they stick, continue to give stories that Netflix is never going to touch and that studios are never going to touch. So I think that especially transgressive stories can only be delivered through books. And describe transgressive. Anything in which nice people who read The New Yorker do not want to hear about. So we're talking about not forever, but for now, and I'll, I'll mention it more in the intro, but this book is definitely transgressive. It's not going to be in The New Yorker, any sections from this book. Uh, and it's not going to be on NPR. You know, NPR is not a place for transgressive. So... Uh, in this book in particular, it's about two little boys who kind of have an obsessive, incestuous relationship, and they watch nature films, which is a thinly veiled uh, metaphor for online pornography. Their entire life is nature films, and uh, they eat nothing but sweets, which is a metaphor for drugs, and somehow they have managed to squander about 30 years living in their nursery which is a lovely reference to the woman in uh, The Haunting of Hill House uh, who ages 30 or 40 years from a child to an old woman and eventually dies in Hill House. So, so like, this is, I, I don't want to say this is completely different from other books you've written, but of course it is. But how, how did you, how did you come up with this? Like in the, in the Welsh setting and the idea of a family of professional killers, like what's, what was kind of made you wake up one day and say, this is the book I have to write? Uh, have you ever lived any place where it snowed and snowed and snowed and you were stuck in the house for three weeks? Uh, yeah, kind of. Like, you know, I've lived, I lived most of my life in New York and the area around there. I lived in Ithaca, New York for a while, and, and that was very snowy. I, uh, I got a stack of cozy mysteries from Barnes & Noble, these mysteries where uh, somebody has their throat cut at a bake sale in an English village and, and a dog solves a mystery or the vicar solves a mystery or the uh, little Miss Marple. And so I read all of these thinking, what is the appeal? And I was kind of disgusted because they were all the same, but I was kind of charmed because there was a, a kind of autistic disconnect between the horror that was depicted. Somebody getting their throat cut or their head bashed in during church rumble sale and nobody reacting to it emotionally. Everyone reacting to it as if it was just a new board game, uh, something that they all had to rush to solve the mystery. So this complete 
flattened emotional affect sort of made it very funny for me. So I thought I would sort of take that, that lack of reaction to death and horror and, and write kind of the mother of all cozy mysteries. You know, I feel like that lack of emotion to, to murder and horror happens a lot in, in movies and TV. So, so every superhero movie, like the big bad villain comes in and kill, you know, there's car, there's, there's buildings that are crashing and planes going down. A lot of people die and you never hear about all the funerals and the sadness and the pain that's been caused. And, and this happens in every single movie. And like kids are just waiting for like, you know, Spider-Man to like wrap up the guy in a web and Iron Man to say something witty. But like, there's a lot of death and sadness that must be happening in the real world. And, and you're right, like it happens even in like these thrillers or, or mystery novels. Like everybody will be dying in some town and, and people will be focused on, well, what's the clue to solve this as opposed to going to funerals and being really upset that their best friends died. Well, and also so much of it is what I think of as tableau horror, like in Da Vinci Code, we don't actually see the people slaughtered. We come across these elaborate uh, tableaus in which the body has been arranged in this overdramatic way. And the archbishop is sort of strung up by his entrails. So it's a suggestion of violence and pain without us actually having to witness it. Yeah, so it's almost like, you know, on the one hand, I think fiction in general provides a safe way to experience the horrors and pains of life. You could re read about someone's marriage and divorce. You could read about someone's death. You could read about someone's search for meaning. And you don't have to actually experience it yourself. You could live it through somebody else. And then to take it one step further in these very graphic thriller stories, like let's say the Da Vinci Code, it's almost like a safe way to experience that extreme violence. Like we have that craving for the extreme, the transgressive, but we don't want to admit it. So it gives us this safe path to have those emotions. Do you think in your book, you're kind of making fun of that? Or in this book, what are you doing related to that? In a way, I am making fun of it, just making fun of that form where, you know, horror happens and it happens off screen. Uh, and then it's immediately turned into a kind of game that has to be solved. Uh, I'm also thinking of books like, uh, do you remember The Alienist? Yeah, Caleb Carr. I've had Caleb Carr on the podcast, actually. Yeah. You know, I just, I just forgot about that until now. I had him on in like 2016. So it is male, uh, male child sex workers who are slaughtered. And we never see them slaughtered. We always find them on top of the Brooklyn Bridge with their entrails and their organs arranged in some cryptic pattern. And so in a way, it's a, a huge cheat because we are seeing the suggestion of incredible violence done to children, but we are always seeing it after the fact. So even though it purports to be more gruesome or a gruesome transgressive thing, it is not because we're only seeing the after effects. Uh, it's like a reaction shot. We, we we don't see the violence. We see people's reaction to the violence. Now, you know, with Caleb Carr, I wonder for him if he's also finding a safe way to experience these emotions personally. So for instance, and I, I apologize to Caleb Carr <laughs> if I'm not recommending, uh, remembering exactly everything we discussed uh, seven years ago, but I think he had suffered abuse as a child. And so he didn't want to have children because he felt like that sort of 
passes from generation to generation. And I wonder if he was himself finding kind of a safe way to deal with these emotions inside of himself. And so, and then the question is for you, to what extent in books ranging from Fight Club to this book, and to what extent are you playing out emotions that you feel you can't experience in real life? Yeah, for me, it's it's really super easy. And that uh, the two little boys feel enormously inadequate. They feel enormously kind of rejected by their parents and by society because they are uh, kind of, they, they call themselves pre-males, that they, their father has disappeared very early in their childhood, and they, they've had kind of no access to becoming adults. Uh, the metaphor that they have attached to is the, uh, the kind of fetal joy that comes out of the kangaroo's uh, vagina and has to climb up the outside of the kangaroo's fur and ideally get into the, the pouch, the marsupial pouch, where it can, can complete its development. But there's always the danger that the, uh, that the joey is going to fall off and just be fall onto the, uh, into the Australian outback and die in the dust. And that the mother can't help it and that the father's not there. And this poor little just mass of cells has to do this impossible task. And so these little boys find themselves isolated and forced to do this impossible task of trying to become adults. So they are, yeah, it's a, it's a huge book about inadequacy. And, and w at what times in your life have you felt inadequate? Oh, my God. You know, I think about the age of three or four, when, when you're same-sex attracted and your dad realizes, oh, my God, it's going to be a fag. And the dad... <laughs> Distances, distances himself from the infant fag because the dad has no idea how to deal with this thing. And so the dad is, he's just got to get out of the picture. It's like, I, I can't deal with this. I have no idea what this thing is going to be. And so the dad disappears. And so that is kind of very much the case of Cecil and Otto is that they they sort of have internalized the sense that they are despised and that they have no way of sort of completing their adulthood. And, and in what sense did you have a hard time completing your adulthood? I'm not trying to be all, you know, Sigmund Freud here, but you know, clearly there's, there's a connection that you brought up that, that you're exploring here. You know, a lot of it is just floundering around. You, you have no idea what to do and you, you kind of distract yourself. Uh, you just, you're just trying to get from day to day. Uh, without dealing with any of the issues uh, until things kind of come to a head, maybe, perhaps usually late in life. Uh, and then you take all the wrong steps. Do you think of, uh, oh, uh, was it Sebastian, the character in Suddenly Last Summer? At the very end of the play, when he's confronted by this enormous sort of uh, mess that he's made of his life, he's finally going to try to resolve the situation. That leads to his destruction. Now, you had success fairly early on with Fight Club, and, you know, since then, have, do you feel like, oh, a, a better sense of belonging? Like maybe the father wasn't there, but now you have this community of writers and readers that love you and are, are kind of give you more of a feeling of, oh, I've made it. I've, I've succeeded despite 
despite the f- missing father, despite the the disaffected mother or whatever it was? Uh, you know, that's the only reason why I could have written this book. Uh, this is the kind of book that you only write from a place of eventual safety, whether it's nothing left to lose or whether it's a kind of a stable place where I have some resources. But I could never have written this book from, uh, at the beginning. In a way, this book is a kind of a, a completion and a continuance of Fight Club because the two little boys, the older boy is very much like uh, Tyler Durden. And the younger boy is very much like the witnessing character of the narrator in Fight Club. Right. It's very much parallel to that, except to more of an extreme. <laughs> like, like, people won't emulate these two characters, I don't think. But Fight Club, somehow, people emulated it. Like, Fight Club's actually started. Because Fight Club uh, presented a kind of activity that could be replicated. The Fight Clubs themselves. And they kind of... They presented an activity in Project Mayhem that people could replicate as a means of kind of being with each other and exploring these issues, whether they fought each other or whether they just did these huge outdoor public pranks. I have to say... Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he, was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long 
And both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Have you ever thought about writing a kind of, let's call it typical coming of age type novel that's really about where you came from and who you are and why you are who you are? I can't imagine wasting my time on writing such a novel. Uh, that would be, I would read it. That would be great to see your style in your world. I think Tobias Wolf has already written that novel. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I guess, have, but everybody's got their own take on it. You know what this book reminds me of? Have you ever read um, this this author Anderson Prunty? He he has a, he has a book called Fuckness, mm. and uh, the Otto character sort of reminds me of a character in this book who just really can't fit in at all and has this life of despair and what he calls fuckness, and uh, and uh, stranger and stranger things happen. Uh, in in the novel, I think I think you would like it. It's like a, a a strange kind of style, but when you say like this couldn't have been written before, do you think if you were unknown, would a publisher publish this book? Uh, right now, in, at this point in history, probably not. But maybe twenty years ago, maybe twenty five years ago. Yeah, I feel like twenty five years ago, so like mid nineties. I feel like from the mid eighties to the mid nineties, there was this kind of acceptable indie book scene within the major publishers. So when you, when you had things like the vintage books and American Psycho and and Jay McInerney stuff and I don't know there were a lot of there were a lot of novelists who I feel Random House and others were, were taking a chance on and train uh, train spotting Marabou Stork Nightmares all of Irving Welsh. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, how how much of a influence was was Welsh? Uh, you know, he was a huge influence because I think for a lot of people, American Psycho was uh, too, too much, but train spotting was just enough. So it kind of hit that sort of happy medium. 
that made transgressive, you know, bearable. Yeah, it's interesting because American Psycho, I would say part of the appeal of reading that was, and, and not only American Psycho, but also Less Than Zero by Brett Easton Ellis, there's like no emotion in the main characters. So you don't get this feeling that, you know, like we do with a superhero movie that there's all this pain and nobody feels anything. It's like the main character himself doesn't really feel anything and we, the reader, are aware that's a problem. But in Train Spotting, it's interesting because the dialogue is so realistic and, and you really feel that not only the, these people do feel things, but it's like a different sort of feelings than, than quote unquote regular people have. And the point of view jumps around so that you, you have, it's, it's kind of diluted between several characters and you're not always inside uh, Patrick Bateman's head. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I feel like the first three books by Brady Sinellis I really enjoyed, which was Less Than Zero, Rules of Attraction, American Psycho. And then after that, I just sort of lost, I, I kind of lost the thread of, of his books. But what other influences from that period do you think you have? Uh, you know, very much the, the minimalists, because a lot of the minimalists kind of do that trick, but they do it in a kinder, gentler way. People like uh, Mark Richard and Amy Hempel, where they will present, uh, the story without sort of dictating emotion. The, the characters won't have an emotional reaction, even though they're being abused by their father or they're watching their best friend die. And their lack of expressing emotion within the story forces the reader to carry the entire building accumulation of emotion and pain. And so by the end of the of story, like in the garden where uh, Al Jol in, in the cemetery where Al Jolson is buried, you find yourself weeping and you're not really sure why you're weeping so hard. And it's because you've been forced to carry all of the pain that the narrator hasn't expressed. Yeah, that's so interesting. I never thought of minimalism in that way, it, but it's not only minimalism of language, it's minimalism of emotion. And we've of course spoken about Dennis Johnson before and his collection of stories, Jesus son. But uh, even in the very first story in that collection, car crash while hitchhiking, all these horrific, horrible things happen, and the main character's reaction, or and the main character is called fuckhead. <laughs> saying I'm saying the word fuck a lot in this podcast, but uh, uh, the main character has almost no emotional reaction. He's even surprised that he addresses the reader directly in the in the last sentence. Even surprised anybody expects emotion from him. It's as if he doesn't really know how to do it. Yeah, and that very much a, a kind of a combination suggestion of being on drugs but also being a kind of callow young person. So it's a perfect combination to, to, to do that kind of story. Yeah, and it's interesting how that, you know, that's a collection of connected short stories. And by the end, the main character is more sober. He's like in a rehab, a Beverly home. Right. But, and, and the stories are less disjointed. They have a more of a narrative, but he still has kind of this emotionless, reaction to many things. Like he's, he's a voyeur without necessarily pondering the, the ethics of it. He just wants to see something happen. But, but he's also learning in those scenes where he's the voyeur through the bathroom window. He's not just witnessing the naked woman in the shower. He's also witnessing the act of, uh, of forgiveness between the husband and wife as the wife, mm. as the husband washes the wife's feet. He is kind of learning what it is to be a human being. And that's where it becomes so redemptive in a gorgeous, understated way. 
But I, I wouldn't say you're a minimalist in that way, though. I mean, in many ways, particularly in language, you're almost a maximalist. And and here, the stories are are just dripping with every angle and every possible scenario that these characters could get involved in. Like it's you're pushing the limit of the reader and the characters. And so so you're inspired by the minimalist, but how does it show up, let's say, in this book? Well, to me, minimalism isn't necessarily about language itself. Uh, for me, minimalism is like when you think about a play, a play has to keep its setting limited. It has to keep its time limited. People are only going to sit in their butts for two hours, which is why I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. And it has to keep its characters limited. It has to keep its objects limited. So a play escalates very quickly because it has so, so few things to work with. And that's how I see minimalism. I see it as a Skipper's Seafood commercial where you've got to show Skipper's Seafood in as many different ways as possible in 30 seconds. So you're not going to throw in a picture of a horse. You're going to throw in just everything that says Skipper's in as many different forms as possible. So in minimalism, I see the themes, the characters, the settings, the objects as all being very limited, like in a play, so that those, so that the story itself escalates very quickly. Right. And then I guess also there's an extent of, of mystery. Like you're going to always have, there's a lot of things that you know that you keep hidden from the reader and the reader is maybe guessing, but, but, but gradually figuring out this world that, that you're putting them in. Right. And also introducing them in a kind of, uh, wrinkled chronology. So we, we get a glimpse of something and then much, for example, the, the nanny that fell down the stairs and wrung her neck. And then later we find out uh, that uh, how she fell down the stairs and wrung her neck. And then we find out more or less why she fell down the stairs and someone wrung her neck. So the story is hinted at, but then over the course of the entire book, this very small subplot is fleshed out. And so I've never done this before, but it was a blast to do it this time. And to force the reader to assemble all of those out of order details uh, and to suffer the pain without me having to dictate it. It's interesting. You say you've never done it before. I feel though, like, I feel like Fight Club was a little bit disjointed in that way. Uh, Fight Club feels like a walk in the park compared to this one. This one is really uh, a Gordian knot. Yeah, because Fight Club still exists in what I'll call our world. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas this one, it, it does exist in our world technically, but somehow it's not. These are characters we really wouldn't have a chance of encountering in the, in the real world, in, in, in my world, for instance. Yeah, it's, and boy, even the language, just the language of this one is so different for me just to sit down and just kind of put on this entire wardrobe of somebody else's language was a blast for me. I, I, I've never had so much fun adopting all of these Brit phrases uh, and studying language to figure out what the phrases actually meant and the purposes they served. I felt like I was writing Clockwork Orange. Yeah, it felt like you were at, th this one more than just about any other book I've read from you, this one felt like it was a party for you. <laughs> Like every time you sat down, you were like, how can I make this as fun as possible, this chapter? And also heartbreaking. This book had the most 
heartbreaking things I've ever put into a book. Chapter 43, where they go out and they're going to pick up some low-class street guy, some guy with absolutely no future, but who just happens to be like 19 years old. They're going to pick him up. They're going to abuse him. They're going to dump him. And that scene where they're preying on this kid's loneliness, it was just heartbreaking for me. And is that because, like, what did you picture when you were writing that? Were you the 19-year-old? Like, what was, what, was going, what was the heartbreaking part for you? I was both the characters. And that it, it really put me in touch with when you're same-sex attracted and you are that age and you're not out and you're living in a place where you don't have the freedom to be anything. And you will do absolutely anything for any predator if it means uh, getting, not being lonely for a moment. And you will do anything that kind of deadens the fantastic loneliness and isolation that you feel. And you will, you will tell yourself that it's, that it's love or that it's emotional connection when in fact it's not. It's just a kind of respite from pain and loneliness. And so that is so present in that scene. And in a way, I kind of saw that very much in the Dahmer series that Netflix brought out. They really kind of brought to the fore the enormous pain of loneliness and what it will drive people to do. Where did you grow up again? I, I don't know. I grew up in a little town called Burbank, Washington, which was about 300 people on the Snake River in eastern Washington state. And do you think when, when you started writing, it was almost like you're sending this uh, message in a bottle out to the world to try to find others who, who can connect with your writing, i.e. connect with you? Do you feel that was a, a, an an instinct to, that got you started writing? You know, it's never been a kind of attempt to connect. It's been a, an attempt to kind of analyze my feelings and to choose the ones that still seem valid. Like in Fight Club, you know, I, I really had to make fun of the fact that I thought that furniture would make me a, an adult, that I thought having a, a good condominium or having a good car would make me a, an adult. So I really had to kind of look at all the fallacies of my life it's never been about connecting. It's been about kind of dissecting my life and making fun of the, the, the broken parts, the fake parts. It's funny. I wonder if, if a lot of people go through that. Like for, for me, I thought when I could afford my own VCR, mm-hmm. if people don't know what a VCR is, it's <laughs> a video cassette recorder. I won't explain. But when I could afford my own VCR, that's when I felt like I made it to adulthood. And, like, and, and uh, and I think if you're really honest about expressing those fallacies and making fun of yourself, then you do inadvertently connect because you provide other people with the opportunity to do that, to express this, uh, whether it's a feeling that they, they never feel like they grew up or that they maybe spend a lot too much time watching nature films on Pornhub. You know, you provide that opportunity for other people to say, oh, my gosh, me too. And to not feel bad about it, but to laugh about it. If you were to rank like someone's prospects in writing, it seems like not necessarily an ability with language, although that's extremely important, but an ability that ability you just mentioned to be able to to find where your pain was, where you went wrong, and to be able to to almost laugh about it w- without arrogance. I feel that's an, a strong part of every good writer. Well, and I think it's uh, a little more difficult when I, I don't have children. So I'm not going to see I'm not going to see their develop, developmental stages, and so I'm not going to be sort of automatically reminded of 
decisions I made at those stages. So for me, it's a little bit more uh, haphazard. And things like watching Mutual of Omaha's Animal Kingdom and revisiting the enormous terror that I felt as a child when I wasn't sure whether the baby fawn was going to be destroyed by the tribe of baboons, it, getting in touch with those and then putting them on the page and seeing that those scenes also trigger other people who are also, as children, terrified of seeing that baby animal destroyed. Uh, that is what I do because I don't have kids I can watch. Do you ever regret the not having kids? Oh, geez, no. I'm, uh, I would have been, <laughs> this is a generalization that might not be the case, but I am such an obsessive writer that I think I would have made a lousy parent. I mean, I am a really good dog parent. My dog has a great life. My long series of dogs have all got, had great lives, but dogs are not kids. And I, I would I would have been one of those writer parents whose kids suffer. Yeah, I uh, when I was younger, I never wanted to have kids, but of course, you know, one thing happens after another, and I have two biological kids, three step kids, and so now I've now I have a whole coven of kids. <laughs> Do you recognize when they go through a, a developmental stage and they, they, they sort of are thwarted or stopped by something? Do you recognize the moment that you were in that stage? Oh, absolutely. And it's so painful because you can't give them really any advice. Because if you remember when you were at those stages, you're so filled with those young emotions that words are just meaningless. Like they cannot combat all the hormones and and emotions that are happening inside your brain and body. And when they were born, I was really sad, not because I didn't want to have kids, but because I knew eventually they would go through some of the things that I've been through. And it's just, it was horrible imagining these little babies would one day experience those things. What about in seeing them go through this, those stages, has it allowed you to kind of uh, recalibrate your life from decisions that you made at those stages? I don't know. I don't think so. Because I think I would have made mistakes no matter what, and I think I would have regretted them no matter what, even though I see that they're common things uh, through them. But, like, imagine the things you went through. Like, do you have any regrets in life? Do you, do you wish any part of your life were different? You know, I, I really wish that I had, had uh, made the time as a child to sit down and spend more time just talking with my older relatives. Um, mm. Even back then, our lives were so full of distraction and we would sit with the television and the television would hold everyone's attention. That I, I never really engaged with my, my older relatives in a task. I could have sat down and helped them do something and that would have given us the opportunity for me to learn what their lives had been. So in a way, I have no idea who they were or, or where they came from. It's funny how now that won't be the case as much for our great, great, great grandkids because of the social media. They'll see all the dumb, stupid things we were doing all the time. It's all documented. Like, I wish I could see the, my great, great, great grandfather's TikTok videos, but they don't, it didn't exist. I really hope that's the case.
From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a, a weird question, but do you ever wish that you hadn't been born same-sex attracted? No, never. Uh, it just seems like something that uh, was just so much a part of me from such a young age that I cannot imagine my life. You know, for a long time, I, I, I tried to be uh, uh, attracted to women. And I, I dated and I had sexual responses. And I tried to pursue that, but ultimately it was just so tortuous. It was un unpleasant for me. It was unpleasant for, for the women. And so it just would have been a, a disaster for everyone. At what age did you sort of like own it that this is who I am? Probably at 12 or 13. But, but even after that, though, you still try to have you know, relations with women and so on. Oh, at least through uh, the age of... 18 or 19, yeah. And so when, when I say own it, when did you finally say, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that anymore. <laughs> this is who I am, forget it. When I realized that I was just screwing up everybody's lives, you know, I was screwing up the lives of these beautiful young women I was with, I was screwing up my life, I was misleading everybody, um, yeah. So it was just, I was causing nothing but suffering for people. <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it. See, that's why I think a novel about your, you know, kind of a somewhere between novel and narrative nonfiction about your experience would be, would be so fascinating. I would read a, that novel. You know, uh, I am so much a, uh, an advocate for, for metaphor. Uh, you read Valley of the Dolls, right? Yeah. And yeah, I love Valley of the Dolls, actually. I adore Valley of the Dolls. And when it came out, people really crucified Jackie Suzanne. And they said, what you write about that Tony Polar going into the institution and being having this progressive brain disease and becoming a vegetable catatonic. And what you write about breast cancer, that's all exploitive. It's crude and exploitive. And Jackie Suzanne, you're a monster. But the truth is that Jackie Suzanne had a severely development, developmentally damaged child that she visited on a weekly basis in, in a care home and that she struggled with breast cancer most of her adult life and it eventually killed her. And so in the movie, when, when we see in the day room of the asylum, where we see Patty Duke's character 
sort of stagger across the day room and embrace Tony Polar's character. What we're seeing is Jackie Suzanne embracing her severely damaged child at Willowbrook. And yeah, it looks like schlock, but it is so based on her life. It is is still really powerful. It's what she was trying to express about her own life. And she just maybe wasn't the greatest writer to do so. But I still think that 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 kind of personal pain is better expressed in fiction, where other people can attach to it in a non-threatening way. They can pretend that it's just a made-up story. Uh, And it's not just exclusively the the experience of Jackie Suzanne or Chuck Palahniuk. I guess it's it's what we were referring to earlier, like what is the safe way to experience these some of these painful emotions? And not because you're trying to um, make it as soft as possible, but because you want people to experience those emotions and not leave the, the, the writing because it's too hard for them. Right, you want to charm them. Because first and foremost, these are people who are spending their spare money and their spare time to consume this thing. And if they know that they're going to be spending their money and their time consuming a painful story, you know, why? Nobody wants to spend their their downtime reading about pain. But if you can give them Rosemary's Baby and not say you're going to be reading a story about thalidomide, about deformed children, because uh, mothers are being given these these cakes and these drinks and nobody's explaining anything until the baby is born with these claw-like hands and feet. No, nobody's going to sit sit down and say, oh yeah, I want to spend my all my off time reading about deformed babies and, and, and chemicals approved by German drug manufacturers. No, no, it's got to be, it's got to be Rosemary's Baby. Is that what Rosemary's Baby was really about? Yeah. I I would I love Rosemary's baby for the religious aspect. I would bet everything because all throughout it it is thalidomide. And it is about how the the booties are being uh crocheted in such a way that they they look like they're being made for claws. And huh. the claws very much sort of the trademark of a child suffering from thalidomide sickness. So I really think that that's what Ira Levin got away with and that he could never overtly state because nobody was going to say, oh, great, a a thalidomide novel. Nobody was going to read that. Nobody was going to publish that. But that's the horror that we were reacting to that we were not aware of. Wow. I have never thought of it that way. And I've read and reread and and also seen the movie a bunch of times. I never thought of it that way, but you're probably right. And it was around that that time also, like the late 60s when he, when he wrote that. And another thing is people had such a strong anger reaction to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery when it came out in The New Yorker and subscriptions canceled and, and people railing saying, this woman is the devil. How dare she publish this, this, this horrible story that seems so Norman Rockwell on the front end but ends up with such fantastic violence of this woman being stoned to death by her own children. And how dare the New Yorker publish this thing. But when you consider the time it came out in, I would bet, I would bet, and for a short period of time, 
I was in possession of Shirley Jackson's ashes. Her cremains were sent to me by her daughter. But I would bet that that story was Shirley Jackson's incredibly smart way of saying, hey, let's look at the draft lottery during the Korean War. And if you just happen to get the right number and your number gets called, you are going to be destroyed in a fantastically brutal, painful way, and nobody's going to give a shit. And that's what we have to do to keep our society up and running. And nobody is going to sort of, in the moment, stop and protest this. They're going to let you just have your number called and tough luck. Sucks to be you. You're going to go step on a mortar and die and be blown to bits. And people do not want to think about that. They do not want to, in their comfortable lives here at home, they do not want to think that these nice kids are, are, are just going to go and be slaughtered because of a stupid number that got pulled out of a stupid thing uh, on television, I believe. Wow, you're you're totally right. You're blowing my mind here. I never thought about the lottery that way. But but if you think about it, it's a topic that was on everyone's mind, and because she used the the power of metaphor, she's able to take it to such an extreme and yet touch this emotion we're all feeling right probably right then when she wrote it in you know during that time and it, uh, and it, and ex- make it extreme again. And so much of the rage that people felt was a fantastic shame. They did not want to be confronted with the fact that their comfortable lives are dependent upon a bunch of sweet, innocent people being destroyed in this arbitrary way. And they didn't want to, they didn't want that thrown in their faces and they never would have understood that. But by putting it in a metaphor, in a fiction story, Shirley Jackson was brilliant because she, she triggered them and they didn't know why they were so triggered. It's interesting because I've asked this question to a lot of people and and use the word triggered. A lot of people get triggered by this. Do you think there was ever a war? Let's just even just look at American history. Do you think there was ever a war that was really justified? <sighs> and it's a, it's a sensitive topic for a lot of reasons. You know, I don't know enough about war. I just do not know enough about war to to answer that. I feel like that's a cop-out a little bit. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I just want to be, I think I'd be flailing and I'd be making up a lot of stuff to, to try to come up with an, with an example. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just do not know enough. But, it, but every war has this element of somehow other people are making a decision to send off our children to get destroyed, like you say. And in that in that context, nothing seems nothing seems worth it. And and they're doing so, and they're immediately uh, forgetting the fact that they did so. Uh, recently, I've been reading a ton of mid-century science fiction because my next thing I want I want to do science fiction. I want to do one big science fiction book. And so much of what what I'm reading from the 40s and the 50s are these stories that are very thinly veiled war stories from from guys who came back from World World War II, and they're writing about guys coming back from these expeditions to the moon where they've seen all of their peers destroyed, uh, killed in these brutal ways. And they're having to, to de- deliver the details to, the, to the, the parents of these men who've died. 
or the or the stories are about these robots that have to go through their lives with no emotion whatsoever, despite these kind of horrible things that are happening to them. So all of this mid-century science fiction seems to be war stories that nobody wanted to read and nobody wanted to buy and nobody wanted to publish. So they had to be tarted up as science fiction stories about missions to Mars and robots. And so I think that the, the war stories are all over out there, the stories about pain, stories like the lottery, but they have to be dressed up in order to be sold. What about something like The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, ah. which, you know, specifically, it, it is a giant metaphor, but it's an easy metaphor. Like, obviously, they carried weapons in Vietnam, but they also carried, you know, emotions about the girl back home and fears and, and loneliness and so on. So what about something like that, where it is directly in a war and it is a very sad book? You know, and it's funny you mentioned that because I was just teaching with a friend four days ago and we were teaching that story. And my friend really loves that story. But I have never been a fan of that story because that story seems to constantly vacillate about depicting really horrific things and then saying that didn't happen. And so there seems to be kind of no true core to the story. And that's always frustrated me. That's interesting. Maybe no true core because everybody's different. Everybody in, the, in this troop is different and they're carrying different things. But the thread is, you know, Vietnam. There's this like foundation of Vietnam and, and, but it's really about the fact that we're, they're kids and they're bringing a lot of sad things with them as well as these weapons that they're using to, to kill people. And, and when uh, the character is depicted stepping on the landmine and, and dying on this beautiful sudden burst of sunshine, and when the other character is depicted taking the water buffalo baby and then shooting away different parts of it, trying to kill it as slowly as possible, and then the reader is kind of subjected to these, these moments that are so beautifully unpacked. But then all of that is instantly negated when the narrator says, that didn't happen. That's not true. Um, it, it just—it leaves me really frustrated, not knowing what is true and what is made up. And so that's why I can never find the kind of core in that story. But wouldn't people say that about a lot of your novels? And again, I'll just take because most people know know it. Fight Club as an example. Well, we don't know what's true and what's not in, in when we're reading the book initially. You know, things that happen in my novels. You, uh, what happens, happens, but you don't understand the, the full context of what they are. We, we don't understand that uh, yeah. until later. It, it doesn't negate what actually happened. What happened, happened, but it sort of changes the, the circumstances. It provides a fuller understanding of the circumstances, which is what I think we get throughout life. As a child, we experience something and we think, okay, that's what happened. But then much later in life, we find out all the surrounding circumstances for why it happened and what it really fully involved. It's so, it's so, it's so interesting because I guess, and since you're reading mid-century science fiction, you look at an author like Kurt Vonnegut, who was sort of born out of mid-century science fiction, and then you lead to the Slaughterhouse-Five, which is his war story, but completely in this like weird science fiction context you know, time travel happens, space travel happens, but it's all basically about his experience in Dresden. Well, and I think that's the other thing is that 
the uh, the war experience from World War II, it it could be depicted either in science fiction um, with this kind of space cowboy thing, or it could be depicted in kind of ludicrous, over the top, uh, Catch Twenty Two, Slaughterhouse Five, absurd comedy. Yeah, it really, for most for the two or three decades following World War II, it could only be one or the other, or it could be in a small way depicted in uh, Catcher in the Rye, because that mm. came out of Salinger's fantastically brutal experience. Or it could be depicted in the absurd comedy of Dennis, uh, Patrick Dennis. And he was oh. one of the top selling writers in the mid-century, uh, beginning with Anti-Mame. He wrote maybe a dozen books that were huge sellers, but there were all these very comedic books that were him processing his World War II trauma. Uh, in this comic way, like Joseph Heller. Yeah, it's it, it it's interesting. Uh, I, it's, you've you've shed a whole new light for me on how metaphor has been used in this past century's worth of novels and stories. So, like, what science fiction novels are you reading right now? Uh, uh, I'm reading Dune. I'm reading Ursula Le Guin, Left Hand of Darkness, and I'm reading mostly short stories because I want to cover a lot of territory. Uh, I've reread Martian Chronicles a thousand times. But I'm reading, rereading a lot of short stories that I loved as a child in the '60s. I, I always liked uh, Asimov's and Ray Bradbury short stories. And Bradbury is so much about uh, that lost innocence, uh, that sort mm. of lost American Midwest innocence. And so is uh, Earl Hamner. I love Earl Hamner well, science I don't know fiction. Him. You know, um, if you know the Waltons, yeah. The Waltons was created by Earl Hamner, and he is basically, it's his sort of bio. Uh, he is John Boy Walton, this kid in, in West Virginia who is sitting in his upstairs bedroom during the Depression wanting to be a writer. And then I love the fact that Earl Hamner, John Boy Walton, goes on to write the most fucked up episodes of The Twilight Zone. So this I didn't know that. sweet kid is writing the darkest, most twisted stuff that was ever on Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, all of those anthology television series. Do, do you remember which uh, any particular episode of The Twilight Zone that he might have written? I'd have to look it up. I, I'm sorry. Okay. But it's, it's, yeah. I was shocked how many that he had done. Yeah, that, that's funny. I, I had no idea. Um, do you ever read uh, Don Carpenter, uh, Hard Rain Falling? No, but tell me about it. It's um, it's about a kid who his parents were just losers and and died young and had him in a night of passion and he ends up growing up in foster homes and he's becomes a violent kid in Portland, Oregon, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and he's just trying to figure out like why is he so violent? Why was he? Why is he such a loser in in his own words and you know, he hangs out in, in bars, pool halls. He tries to rob people, but he knows it's all meaningless. And he's trying, he's desperately trying to find meaning in his life. And it's very realist. It's hard to find the metaphor. But what intrigued me was Don Carpenter had a bunch of friends that he would hang out with. Richard Brodigan, um, other writers who I had read separately. But they all, well, they had one thing in common. They all hung out with each other. They wrote, all wrote this real hardcore stuff and they all committed suicide. <laughs> so, so I was just curious if you had any 
Like, here's people who are writing really realist stuff. Like, I didn't even realize, I read a bunch of novels. I didn't realize all these people knew each other and that not only that, they all killed themselves at different times in their lives. Why do you think that happened? <laughs> That's a big question. Maybe it's another benefit of writing through a metaphor, kind of writing, uh, instead of writing my story, writing the lottery, writing it as a, a kind of a non-threatening, metaphoric way into the story that makes it entertaining, make it makes sets it at a distance a little bit and makes it a little over to, over the top. So there's wiggle room and you can still express and deal with your issue and exhaust it, but you're not dealing with it so directly. And the, maybe it's also that kind of Foucault concept that when you deal with something directly, you're giving it more power. If you go in direct opposition to your story and you try to figure it out by figuring it out, uh, then you're actually giving it more power and it maybe ultimately destroys you. But if you come at it from an angle and as, as a comedy by writing uh, Slaughterhouse-Five and you deal with it in this kind of indirect way, you can avoid giving it more power and you can actually resolve it for yourself and actually make room, make access for other people to have the same experience at the same time. So you're not, you're not reinforcing it in your head. You are, you're, you're dealing with it without making it stronger. Yeah, it's interesting because you think the lottery, I mean, that, that's introduced into middle school. Like kids, mm -hmm. kids read that because it's, it's quote unquote safe. If it was just about the Korean war, nobody would, they wouldn't assign it to sixth graders. And, you know, and if all those young mothers in the sixties watching Rosemary's baby and just being so troubled by it, if they'd known that it was probably about thalidomide and the fact that that was the giant thing that could not be dealt with in the culture, they would not have gone to it. They would have been destroyed by it. Do you think Ira Levin who wrote Rosemary's baby or Shirley Jackson, do you think they were a hundred percent aware of the metaphor that they were using? Or do you think it's sort of like they were driven by the anxiety of those situations while they were writing those stories? Just from my own experience, I think that they were attracted. I knew Ira Levin wanted to write a, uh, a story about a pregnancy that wasn't what it seemed. And he was really compelled by the midwitch cuckoos, which uh, is the, the story that inspired Village of the Damned, where a bunch of women in an English village suddenly became pregnant the same night and more or less gave birth to exactly the same child. And it's revealed that these, these children were all the offspring of some alien force. But the Midwich Cuckoos had already been written. So Ira wanted to find his own metaphor, his own way to write that story. And I think at the beginning, he wasn't fully aware that he was writing about uh, thalidomide. But as he got into it, and he was writing about these mysterious cakes and the, these mysterious drinks that were being given to this woman, and he was writing about her neighbors uh, crocheting booties that were basically for claws, that he finally realized what he was writing about, but he also knew he could never get caught. If he got caught, he would be like Gilbert Godfrey when he made that crack about missing his connection at the world at the uh, uh, Empire State Building, yeah, 
and everyone said too soon, too soon, that he would have got crucified. And so at that moment, he was probably terrified of getting caught. So he could never, ever, you know, let anybody realize it. And in fact, if people had come to him and said, is it really about thalidomide? He would have said, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy. Of course not. It's interesting because it reminds me of like, let's say, let's just a basic example, 1984, which particularly during COVID times, that book, and also the recent elections, that book was quoted by 100% of people, but everybody thought it applied to the other people. <laughs> so like, if, if, if Orwell had said exactly who this is, he's writing 1984 about, or what society or whatever, then it would be, then, then maybe only half the people would like it or nobody would like it. But because he makes it a sort of science fiction type book, everybody could re relate to it and accuse the other side of being Orwellian. And I love that. I like, I love the fact that both sides use Fight Club to beat on the other side. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, to some extent, it's a big Rorschach test and everybody sees their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and what, what, that's another thing about if I were to write my story, it wouldn't be that kind of a Rorschach test. It would be either people agree with it or they don't agree with it. There would be no kind of uh, ambiguity. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you ne I never really thought of, again, it sounds simplistic, but I never really thought of metaphor in this in this way. Uh, so what do you think? Is that your next project is to do science fiction? Oh, hell yeah. You know what? I love science fiction. I don't see why I shouldn't take a shot at it. I want to do it my way. And uh, yeah, I, I'm so excited about this. And you know, it, I could totally see you doing great science fiction because again, I'll bring up Fight Club. I know you must be sick of answering questions about Fight Club, but that's like a little bit of escapist fiction. We want to be Tyler Durden. And science fiction has elements of escapism. I want to be prince of a galactic empire or a Jedi Knight or whatever. I mean, part of science fiction, I think, is half metaphor, but half escapism. And there's another aspect of writing it that I really thoroughly enjoy, and that's apostolic fiction, where the narrator mm. so admires Tyler Durden. And it is so much, it's so fun, such ongoing ecstasy to write about someone you love, someone you admire, even though what they're doing is very questionable and even despicable. And in Not Forever But For Now, it is Cecil writing about how much he adores his older brother. And despite what his older brother is doing, he is just so in love with his older brother, the way that we tend to be really in love with older brothers. And in the way that America is kind of in love with Great Britain, that's why it's kind of set in England and it's written with all these this these this Brit language, because uh, America just hero worships England, uh, despite all of its sort of uh, uh, flaws. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, there's I don't want to say nostalgia, but you you brought up nostalgia earlier in reference to science fiction and Ray Bradbury. There's a certain nostalgia to a family business, <laughs> like that's like almost old fashioned now. Uh, you don't, people don't have family businesses because that means you make tires or, or, you know, 
you know, some snack or whatever, or cereal, uh, like family businesses are there's, but there's still a nostalgia to them. And, and there's kind of a family legacy that happens in this, in this book. And when you think about it on a kind of national level, empire is a family business. Uh, is the next generation mm. going to sign on to run the empire that we have worked so hard to build? And if they don't, then all of our wealth is going to be destroyed. So Otto and Cecil are being signed on to run this giant killing machine uh, as a kind of metaphor for is the next generation going to sign on to run the giant empire that we have worked so damn hard to uh, to make our lives great? Yeah, it's and it's funny how a lot of that is encoded in language. Like if you tell somebody, you're, let's say next election, you tell a friend of yours, I'm not going to vote. One thing that is commonly said is people died for your right to vote. How could you not vote? People died for your right to vote. And in reality, nobody really died for Chuck's right to vote. <laughs> nobody was thinking, oh, Chuck Palahniuk could vote now <laughs> when, when they were dying. Uh, but it's these words that have been encoded with all this meaning that is foisted upon us so that we continue these these empires and or or this family business or whatever nostalgia is trying to be forced on us. Uh, you know, language plays an important role. And, you know, and voting would maybe be the, the least part of engaging with empire. And depending on who you voted for, you, you would be engaging with empire or maybe engaging with empire on, on a lesser level, maybe help, helping yeah. to resolve empire and saying, maybe we don't need to live in this giant house in the English countryside if it means going out and killing Judy Garland. Yeah. So, well, look, Chuck, I hope everyone reads your book, not forever, but for now. And uh, wh uh, what does the title mean? <laughs> or should we figure it out? You know, it's just a, it's a title about uh, intransience. Is that the word? It's a title about uh, things that are here in the moment, uh, but will not be around forever. So it's a title, really a title about loss, because everything in the book is more or less lost, except for the, the main character, that everything falls by the wayside, everything is resolved, everything is left behind, including Empire. It is this character who moves from being kind of a follower uh, who is just a cipher. It's, it's the classic witness novel where Big Chief in uh, Cuckoo's Nest, you know, he, he, he can't resolve the machine. He can't resolve... Uh, the death of Randall Patrick McMurphy or Billy Bibbit, but he can escape and he can go out into the world and, and be his own, have agency and be his own small fix in the world. And so by the end of the novel, the narrator, Cecil, does escape the world and, and get out and, and have his own life uh, in the way that Anne Wells kind of goes back to Lawrenceville in, in uh, Valley of the Dolls. So it, again, it is the witnessing character. It is Nick Carraway going back to the Midwest, heartbroken, but you know, at least he's not still involved with all of those nasty people. So yeah, it's about leaving everything behind. Someone should write what happens to Nick Carraway after, like for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or in all of these witness novels, someone should just take over 
like the little the little boy in the Road Warrior, Mad you know Mad Max movie. What happened? He grows up. What happened to him? You know that's a good point because would it be that interesting? Because so many people they make the, their whole lives about what happened to them at that early age, like Jack London or uh, Charles Darwin. You know they had yeah. their adventure, and that adventure kind of shaped who they were, and they wrote about it for the rest of their lives. I I always I get worried about that. I I I feel like I'm in a constant fight to not let that happen, and I feel that is a good way to to keep one young as well, to always have the next quest that you're going for instead of always thinking about how to reinterpret, you know, something from the past. And I think part of it is now I'm teaching, and now I'm working with a lot of much younger writers, and uh, is is. It's kind of reshaping how I work, but it's also really fulfilling to kind of walk them through uh, getting their stories out. Uh, maybe it's not the same thing as, as my experience, but but there's a joy in it. Well, Chuck, thanks once again. I always enjoy our conversation so much uh, about your books, about writing, about life in general. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and uh, I always enjoy your books. I hope everyone reads this one and I'm sure you're going to have a lot of work in the next few weeks doing the book tour and the podcast tour and that whole thing. So, so good luck with this and, and hopefully we'll, we'll, you'll come on again when the science fiction book comes out. Uh, I miss seeing you in person. Do you do anything in person? Not as much anymore. I've I've become more even reclusive. Like I barely ever leave, (laughs) but every now and then I I travel a little bit. So if I'm, it's it's conceivable I could be in the Portland, Oregon area at some point. So I'd love to do a podcast if I'm ever there, or if you're ever in Atlanta. You know, in the uh, after the Second World War, there was a La Bomba in Italy where the the culture and everything exploded. It was this giant cultural explosion. And after Franco died in Spain, they, I believe they also called it La Bomba. And so much in in Spain and in, in Madrid particularly is very eighties. Uh, comic book stores and record stores and 80 neon colors um, because they're still so enjoying the freedom uh, that they that they got after Franco died. And I'm really hoping that American culture has that same explosion after COVID. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if we became, we built a habit of not leaving uh, during this and habits are hard to break now. Well, and in, in the same way that, that's, that by the end of the book, Cecil gets out and does his small part in the world to be in the world instead of being in that house with nature mm-hmm. films. I really want to get my ass out there and do my part to try to explode things in the wake of COVID. Yeah, maybe that's how I should how I should view it is kind of uh, getting out there more. I, I feel like I've moved more inward, but it's it's and not, not COVID at first. I was fine with it, but then as it dragged on and as all the people's opinions sort of melded with the culture of it, uh, I kind of became more, I'm just staying in my house. I haven't left my house in about six or seven days right now. So it's become a habit. Oh, James, come on, come on. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna guilt you. I'm not gonna guilt you. I'm just saying it's gonna be a lot more fun if you get out. I, I agree with you. So that, so, between now and the next time we speak, I will I will get out more. I'm going to try to break this habit. Yes, please. Get out of the giant nursery. Get out of the nursery. Yeah.
Yeah, that's that's good. That's that's the metaphor. Happy to beat well, you thanks up very anytime. Much, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, as usual, I I appreciate it. Thank you. Excellent. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big.